we live in a post-Christian culture. That's what it's been called. And in our post-Christian culture, there are many who find the teachings of the Bible to be offensive. There is no shortage of charges leveled against it, and there are many denunciations toward what it contains. In our so-called progressive society, many of the ideas of the Bible have been relegated to uh, a time gone by, a pre-enlightenment era, a kind of dark ages of human existence. The behaviors that the Bible condemns and the way of life that it extols are both an offense to the modern man who has a humanist, secularist world view. Let me give you some examples of what could be offensive to the modern hearer. How about all of the verses that condemn homosexuality? That would be considered an offense to many in our day. Or the many verses that talk about God's design of the family, that speak about the wife's submission to her husband, that teach that the man is the head of his household and the wife is to submit to him in all things. That is offensive to many in our day. Or take anything that Jesus taught about marriage and divorce. Or that God made man as male and female. Or that God condemns sin. Or that there is a day of judgment. Or that there is a place called hell where God will destroy the wicked. Open up the book you have in your lap and preach it in any public venue and undoubtedly before you get too far, people will be offended. But there is perhaps one verse in the Bible that is most offensive of all. One verse that trumps all others. It causes the secular, humanist, non-religious, modern, progressive to wince when he or she hears it. And it also happens to be the very first verse of the book. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Now, why is that offensive? Well, it's offensive because it means that God, that man is not the highest authority in the universe. It's offensive because it implies that God created the world and everything in it, and that you, as part of his creation, are somehow accountable to Him in how you live your life. It means we are not people who have full human autonomy. Our existence is not one of free human agency. Rather, we are people who live in a world and are subject to an all-knowing and all-powerful Creator. I mean, if God is the author of everything, consider this. If He is Earth's architect, if He created things like oxygen and hydrogen, if He gave you body parts and internal organs, if He created the invisible laws of gravity and inertia, if oceans teeming with life was His idea, and if He designed the universe to contain 
trillions of stars and billions of galaxies, the implication is that if God made the world in which you live and He made you also, and you are not into, in submission to this Creator of life, and in fact you may spend your days ignoring Him or opposing Him, then you are in a very bad situation. And who wants to think about that? And so, Genesis 1.1 becomes an offensive verse. Because it reminds the world that God is the one who is over all things. God is the highest authority in the universe. People like the idea of being autonomous. People think freedom means living as you please without anyone else telling you how you ought to live. And if the Bible proclaims a God to whom you will one day answer to, that certainly is offensive. So God is the highest authority. People must subject themselves to Him as the highest authority. And they recoil at such an idea. Yet at the same time, they recognize other forms of authority in the world in which we live. We have various kinds of authority structures on this planet, and most people are compliant to those. Most will agree they are necessary to survive. We are not just running around aimlessly without any kind of order. We have people who are over us. And for the most part, we agree that they ought to be there. For example, everyone in this room is under the authorities that govern our nation. So we have authorities over us at a local level, at a state level, and at a national level. We are all under the authority of the laws of this land, and to some extent, those who are in law enforcement who enforce those laws. We are under the authority of various employers, unless you are self-employed. And even those employers are under various authorities themselves. In fact, you would be hard-pressed to find any place on earth where you are not subject to some kind of higher authority. There are even hierarchies of authority found in the world's religions. Most religions throughout the history of the world have a system of greater and lesser authorities within them, and you will find very few throughout history who had no such structures in place. This was certainly true of the Judaism of the first century. Leaders were appointed to govern the people and lead the nation, and in the first century, Israel was governed by a body of religious leaders called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a Jewish supreme council led by the high priest, which possessed religious, civil, and criminal jurisdiction over the nation. These were the highest authorities over the Jews. Now, if you think, well, didn't they have Roman occupying the nation at this time? Yes, that is true. But what the Romans did, which was very wise, was they wanted the nations they conquered to be self-governing. So rather than expend all of their resources in trying to meticulously rule every part of the empire, 
they would conquer a nation and they would put authorities in place to make sure that they were a self-governed people. So yes, Rome was higher than them, but they wanted the Jews to govern the Jews. And so this made the people less likely to resist the Roman Empire. It was really a brilliant system. So you have the Jews in Israel in the first century ruled by this body of men called the Sanhedrin, and they were the highest authority in the land. Yes, you had a king, but the people recognized he was more of a political figure. He was more of a puppet. He wasn't their real authority because the real authority told them what God required of them. And surely King Herod was not doing that. So the Sanhedrin would carry out justice in the land. They would tell the people what God required of them. And when Jesus was preaching and teaching throughout his ministry, he regularly called their authority into question. The people heard Jesus. He did not speak like they did. He did not teach like they did. In fact, maybe you remember the reaction of the crowds when he preached his famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. I'll just read to you from verse 28. It says, When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Or in another area, Luke 4.31, Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and He was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at His teaching, for His Word possessed authority. Now, what was it about Jesus' teaching that was so different? Well, the teachers of their day would always quote other rabbis. So they would not come in their own authority. They would quote the authority of others, rabbis of eras gone by. So they would say, well, as Rabbi Hillel would say, or as Rabbi Shammai would say. And so they did not speak as men who were appointed and enabled by God. They weren't endowed with their own authority. But when Jesus came, He was. Jesus would say things like, you have heard it said, referring to their teachers, but I say to you, you have heard it said this, but I say to you. And so what was implied in all of his teaching was, here was one who was coming with the authority of heaven. And for men who love to be in charge, and who love to have control, they do not want their authority challenged. And that is what we find here as we look at Luke chapter 20. Verse 1. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things. Or who is it that gave you this authority? 
It's been a number of weeks since we've been in Luke, so it would be a good time for a brief review. Last time we saw that Jesus had entered Jerusalem, this was the final stop on his three-year public ministry, and yet it was not just another stop on his preaching tour, but it was the final stop. He entered into Jerusalem not to take up a kingly throne, as many of the people assumed, but to be nailed to a cross. One week we saw the significance of the timing of that because it was Passover week, which was the annual event where all people from all over the Middle East would come and celebrate that special festival called Passover, offering their lambs as a sacrifice. And we know that Jesus came as the Lamb of God who was the true Lamb of God and sacrifice. We also saw that Jesus' first order of business was to enter into the temple and clear it of all the money changers and all of the men who were buying and selling who turned the holy place into a marketplace. And then in that scene we saw that no one confronted Him, no one challenged Him, no one tried to put a stop to Him. And you would think after making such a scene and turning over their entire financial scheme, he would not show his face there again. But on the contrary, what we find at the end of chapter 19 is Jesus comes and teaches daily at the temple, the very place where he had caused such an uproar. We also found out at the end of 19 that the the religious leaders were plotting to destroy him, but they could not. So they can't do it yet, and yet here Jesus is again teaching in the temple, and they know he's challenging their authority, and they must put a stop to it. So Luke records for us this exchange. He tells us who it was who confronted him. It was a group composed of the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Again, this would at least be part of this larger group called the Sanhedrin. And they have come to investigate why Jesus believes he has the right to do this. And so they question him, verse 2, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. There's a group of men on social media called the Cart Narcs. These are men who have gained a following online because they monitor grocery store parking lots and they politely confront people who do not return their carts to the proper place and they encourage them to do the right thing. The cart narcs. And they look official and they have a uniform on and they have a camera mounted on their chest so they can film the exchange. And if the people do not return the cart, they put a magnet on their car that says, I'm a lazy bones who does not return my shopping cart. And man, that's when the sparks begin to fly. 
Now, I'm not recommending you go watch this. There is language because the people get angry, and when sinful people get angry, they reveal what's in their hearts. But this is what these men do, and some people think, well, who cares if someone doesn't return their shopping cart? I mean, what's the big deal? We've all been probably too lazy at times to return our shopping carts. But interestingly, returning your cart is considered by some to be more than just a polite thing to do. There has been proposed a moral determiner called the shopping cart theory, which suggests that an individual's character can be determined by whether he or she chooses to return a shopping cart to the designated spot or whether they simply leave it wherever it's convenient for them. Listen to the shopping shopping cart theory. The shopping cart is the ultimate litmus test for whether a person is capable of self-governing. To return the shopping cart is an easy, convenient task and one which we all recognize as the correct, appropriate thing to do. To return the shopping cart is objectively right. There are no situations other than dire emergencies in which a person is not able to return their cart. Now here's the rub. Simultaneously, it is not illegal to abandon your shopping cart. Therefore, the shopping cart represents the shopping cart presents itself as the apex example of whether a person will do what is right without being forced to do it. You gain nothing by returning the shopping cart. You must return the shopping cart out of the goodness of your heart. You must return the shopping cart because it is the right thing to do. And the author concludes this essay by saying, Therefore, The shopping cart determines whether a person is a good or bad member of society. (laughs) Now, what a random interjection. I'm talking about Jesus in the temple, and now I'm talking about the cartnarks and returning your shopping cart. How did we get there? I do have a point. When these people who do not return their cart are confronted by the cartnarks, Nine out of ten times they will say in response, who do you work for? Do you work for the supermarket? And when they say no, they are merely a group of concerned citizens who are encouraging others to do the right thing. The people no longer feel any obligation to return their cart. Nine out of ten times they ask these crusaders of cart returning, tell us by what authority you do these things. Or who is it who gave you this authority? They want to know, is this a legitimate authority that I have to obey or I'm going to be in trouble? And when they find out there is no authority there, they don't obey and they will spend 10 minutes arguing with this person rather than spending 30 seconds to return their cart right over there. It's hilarious. We know how important authority is. You want to know whether you are required to do something or if it's just a suggestion. 
you know that we live in a society where there are established authorities, and so you want to know, are these established authorities? You ask that question probably once in a while. Here, back in the first century, the priests and the scribes were the authorities, especially in the temple. This was their domain. They were responsible for the spiritual health of the nation. They were responsible for disseminating the truth of God to the people. And here comes one claiming for himself, without their authority, apart from their authority, some other kind of authority that has not been delegated by them. He has no authority to teach in the temple as far as they are concerned. And the people do not need to listen to him because he is not an authority. But they do listen. They do hear him. They do regard him as an authority. It says at the end of 19, they were hanging on his words. Now, what was he teaching? We don't know exactly, but it wasn't something that agreed with them. It says in verse 1, teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. So Luke doesn't get specific. He was teaching and preaching. And we can assume that maybe he was teaching some of those things we find in the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe he was teaching about the kingdom of heaven. Maybe he was teaching parables. Maybe he was teaching about hypocrisy and the religious leaders of the day. Maybe he was teaching that he is the way, the truth, and the life. But if you're going to teach on anything, according to these men, you need to have an authority that is given to you by them. And Jesus did not have that. So they approach him and they say, tell us by what authority you do these things. Now, if I didn't tell you the next verse, you might think you know how Jesus is going to respond. Because Jesus responded a certain way a lot of other times. He would say things like, I do not speak on my own authority, but I speak on behalf of the Father. In fact, you can read through the Gospel of John and find those statements all over the place. I'll give you one. John 8.28 Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father taught me. <clears throat> so you think, well, Jesus would probably respond that way. He's not claiming to be his own authority. He's claiming to be come from God with the weight of the authority of heaven. But that's not how he responds here. Jesus takes another approach entirely and one that is meant to not only exonerate him before men, but expose the spiritual impotence of the leadership of the nation. And so in response to their question, who gave you this authority? We see in verses 3 and 4, He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? 
So Jesus responds to their question with a question of his own. Now, this is not evading their question. In fact, this was a common rabbinic device to challenge others to think more deeply about an issue. Rabbis often would respond to a disciple's question with a question of their own to force the person to think maybe in larger categories or promote deeper thought within them. And what Jesus does here is brilliant because he knows this is a question that the religious leaders will not answer. John the Baptist was a polarizing figure in the nation because he divided the people from the spiritual leadership. They had vastly different views about who John was. At the time of John, the nation had not had a prophet for over 400 years. John arrives on the scene and he is preaching this profound message of repentance and he's baptizing people and he did not have to go gather crowds. They were coming out to him and it was evident that this was a move of God. Just to remind you, Matthew 3, 5, and 6, it says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were coming out to Him, and they were being baptized by Him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So John's ministry was recognized by the people as being from God. He was endowed with authority from heaven, he looked like a prophet. He sounded like a prophet. He preached this bad prophet-like news and the people, the dread of God came over them and they repented and were baptized. All except the religious leaders who refused Him. They did not get baptized by John. They did not approve His message. Luke tells us in, John's, uh, in chapter 7 of the Gospel, when Jesus says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And then it says, when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by Him. So Jesus knows what their view is of John. They did not believe in John's message. They did not think He had the authority to do what He did. And now they want to confront Jesus, and Jesus says if they want to confront him about whose authority he's under, he's going to put John forward first. If you want to deal with Jesus, you first have to deal with John. One commentator writes about this, even in his death, John is the forerunner of Jesus. So, Jesus essentially raises the stakes on the conversation here. John preached a message of repentance. 
He proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah they were waiting for. And if they acknowledge John, that his message was from God, they are admitting, one, that they are in need of repentance, and two, that Jesus is the Messiah they were waiting for. If they answer, yes, John was from God, then the conversation is over because John said, that's the one you're supposed to follow, pointing to Jesus. Checkmate. Jesus knows they won't answer it. Luke reveals to us in verses 5 and 6 that they realize they're stuck. It says they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. Now you can see the true heart of these men by this private exchange because they don't reflect that they are concerned about what is true. They don't reveal in their conversation whether or not Jesus is from God. But their concern is maintaining their position of power. And much like the politicians of our day, they have to keep a positive public image. I mean, notice they... It's a catch-22. They can't say, no, John was not from God because there's all these people around and what are they going to do if we say that? They're going to go nuts. These types of leaders are always concerned about man rather than God. In fact, we see the fear they have of the people's opinion many times just in this larger section. Look back at chapter 19, verse 48. But they did not find anything they could do to Jesus, for all the people were hanging on his words. Why didn't they confront Jesus already? Because the people. Look down at 20, verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Look a few verses down in verse 26. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. Turn a couple pages to 22 verse 2. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death for they feared the people. So what was it that they feared? What was it that these religious figures in Israel were afraid of the most? They were afraid of losing their position of authority. They were afraid that they were going to lose the control and the power they had over the people. This is the main concern they have with Jesus they accuse him of blasphemy but they're not really concerned about false teaching they're more concerned that he's not teaching in accord with what their system believes and teaches so they can't 
tell Jesus what they really think. They're left without an answer. Says verse 7, so they answered that they did not know where it came from. They don't know. It reminds me of certain religious leaders in our day. I watched a documentary recently about a mega church pastor who has since uh, lost his ministry for a moral transgression. And he was really cool and very fashionable and he spoke like the world and he liked the music of the world and he could really connect with the world. And he does an interview with this daily program called The View. And the ladies on The View are asking him hard questions. What is your view on abortion? And rather than saying, well, the Scripture says... He would just dodge it every time. Well, I would want to have a conversation. I would want to talk to the person. You know, every time they asked him like a direct question, he would get all jellyfish on him and circumvent the question. And it was, oh, okay. Oh, man, that's cool. You know, and and, and all of them were kind of nodding their heads like, yeah, that's good. What about homosexuality? Well, the Scripture says, no, didn't do that. Evaded the question again. Talked in circles over here. He did not give a single definitive answer to any of their questions that are chapter and verse kind of answers. We are given an offensive message to the world. Paul calls it an offense. But it's the truth, and no one benefits from things that are hidden. And for those who are in leadership who are willing to speak the truth, it reveals they are unqualified. So here you have these leaders in Israel. They're not concerned about the truth. They're concerned about their reputation. They're concerned about their position of leadership. They're concerned about keeping the people under their control. And so they don't answer what they think. They have no, uh, if they have a strong conviction on this, which they did, they do not share it. And it's really an admission of their incompetence. You don't know about John? One of the most polarizing figures in the last several hundred years, everyone has an opinion about John. You don't? And according to Jesus, because they are unwilling to have an answer when it comes to John, Jesus will not give them the answer they are asking for. Jesus and John are inseparably linked, and if they do not acknowledge the purpose of the forerunner, they will not acknowledge the one to whom he pointed. So verse 7, they answered they did not know where it came from. Verse 8, Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. It's all authority. What authority? Well, we know 
by what authority Jesus spoke. He spoke by the greatest authority in the universe. The authority that all men are under by means of our creation. The authority that the natural man despises and wants to be free from so that he can be his own autonomous authority. And so, we know what happens. They do finally trap Jesus. That's what the remainder of Luke's Gospel is about. It describes His betrayal. It describes His execution. It describes, of course, His resurrection. And little did these men know what they were doing by destroying Jesus because He was a threat to their authority. What did they do by crucifying Him? They would make Him to become the highest authority in the universe and the very one to whom they would have to give an account. Isn't that what it says in Matthew 28.18? Let me remind you, after His resurrection, before He ascended into heaven, Jesus came to them and said, All what? Authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. All authority. So as we conclude, when people refuse the Gospel today, when they spurn the message, when they use the Lord's name in vain and use Jesus to swear, when they reject His messengers, when they mock and ridicule the things of the Bible, they do it all opposing the greatest authority in the universe. That is what it means when we say that Jesus is Lord. He is the greatest authority in the universe. He is our authority. He is the judge of mankind to whom all will someday give an account. The religious leaders rejected Him. The multitudes in our day most will reject Him. And I want to close with a question to leave you with. Do you submit to this authority? Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Me. Therefore, what? Live for Him. Obey Him. Why? Because He is our authority. So I leave you with this question. Do you submit to His authority? Or are you your greatest authority? Do you pick and choose what you will obey? Do you pick and choose what you will believe? Do you decide what you will watch and what you will listen to? Do you decide who you will spend your time with and what you will do with your body? Are you your greatest authority or is Jesus? Let us pray.
our Heavenly Father, while You have given us the greatest authority, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, His is not an authority that we are crushed under. But His is an authority we are free under. An authority that liberates. An authority that releases men from bondage to sin to enter into a relationship with their God. And so thank You. May this be our life's work to walk with and to obey our highest authority, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.